How We Got Here, Part 5, The Road to Shareholder Capitalism. In the United States, the pandemic was both a health crisis and an economic crisis. But to put it mildly, the pain of the crisis was not felt equally. Some people actually got much, much richer. Billionaires in this country have seen their net worths soar, uh, despite the fact that a lot of Americans out there are hurting right now in the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the amazing Amazon really just continues to amaze and hitting all-time highs almost every single day. Look at this incredible run, up 21% in just two weeks' time. And it's an amazing company, Guy Dami. People are ordering, the company is delivering. By May 2020, just a few months into the pandemic, America's billionaires had already added more than $430 billion to their wealth. By contrast, more than 45 million people had filed for unemployment insurance. Many workers who were still on the job saw, at best, a temporary increase of a few dollars an hour. The reason for this imbalance is because of what we've talked about this whole series. Remember this phrase? The great risk shift. With less benefits, weak unions, and fissured workplaces, risk is on workers, not corporations. So the workers are hit the hardest in a crisis. But even when the economy is booming, that doesn't mean workers win, because most of the money actually goes to shareholders. Instead of increasing wages or providing more benefits, managers and executives usually direct the profits to shareholders. Now, all this might seem malicious, but really, it's pretty banal. It's the result of people making decisions based on one simple rule, that a corporation's primary objective is to increase profits for shareholders. Not just make profits, increase them. This philosophy, in a single phrase, is shareholder capitalism. Even though it might seem natural to us now, we weren't always a country of shareholder capitalism. In this episode, we're going to trace how that came to be. First, we're going to look at how shareholder capitalism became the dominant force shaping American policy. And then we're going to talk about how the field of economics has helped shareholder capitalism seem like not just the best path for society, but the only one. Before we get to all that, let's just sit with the idea of shareholder capitalism for a minute, because it explains a lot. If you believe a corporation's main goal is just to increase profits, well then a lot of corporate bad behavior makes total sense. Like, of course you would offshore money to avoid taxes, because that increases profits. Of course you would do whatever you could to keep labor costs low, because that increases profits. Of course you would take away benefits from workers, because that increases, well, you get the point. Today, executives can be sued if they act in some way that hurts their shareholders. And they are, often. Enriching shareholders is about more than making stuff efficiently and selling more of it. It's about finding ways to direct as much money as possible to shareholders. If you want a clear example of what this looks like, think about stock buybacks. This is one of the main ways companies enrich shareholders. Chevron, Starbucks, Qualcomm, and Apple, just a a few of the names of companies announcing big share buyback programs along with their earnings reports. Apple hitting $1 trillion. A part of that, thanks to the initiation of buybacks at that company. This is all part of the... Instead of investing in the business or paying workers more, a company will use its profits to buy back its own stock. And that raises the price of remaining stocks. So the stockholders make money. 
This has been a favorite tactic in recent years. A study by the Roosevelt Institute found that from 2015 to 2017, America's major companies spent 60% of their profits buying back shares. That same study found that if Starbucks had spent that money on compensation instead of stock buybacks, well, then every worker could have gotten a $7,000 raise. Money that could be really helpful, like right about now. So how did this become normal? How did we get to be a nation of shareholder capitalism? Because this wasn't always the guiding philosophy in America. For a brief period of a few decades after World War II, we had something different. We had welfare capitalism. With welfare capitalism, companies are expected to care not just about increasing profits, but about the well-being of society. Shareholder capitalism was born out of a backlash to this philosophy. And if we trace that backlash, we can see how we arrived at the world we live in today. Welfare capitalism started in the late 40s with the economic boom after World War II. That's when the U.S. became, without a doubt, the most rich and powerful country in the world. The reconversion of war plants to peacetime pursuits is going ahead at full speed. And once more, the automobile factories are humming as huge stamping presses form the bodies of the first automobiles produced since the spring of 1942. American companies were flush with cash, and that meant employers could keep prices low and pay living wages and good benefits to their workers, who at the time were mostly white and male. Now in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, this workforce had the power to make business owners share some profits with them in the form of higher wages and better benefits. They had that leverage thanks to the laws passed during the New Deal, which we discussed earlier in the series. The government was also helping workers out with policies that created jobs and redistributed income. These policies were based on Keynesian economics. The economist John Maynard Keynes believed that governments need to spend money to stimulate the economy and keep unemployment from getting too high. That meant raising money through taxes and increasing public spending on things like social services and infrastructure. And America did this for decades after World War II. For the highways of America, which for so many years were an assortment of as many designs and pavements as there were states, are now becoming one big road that can take you anywhere. But even though the economy was booming and America was on the top of the world, some people didn't like the way things were being done. Remember, those New Deal gains for workers, they meant less power and less money for business owners and elite. They had to pay higher taxes and higher labor costs. As we heard earlier in this series, they went on the attack as soon as the New Deal passed in the 30s. They backed legislation to cut taxes, cut spending, and then they rolled back the protection for workers with these anti-union laws. The Taft-Hartley Act was written for only one purpose, to restore justice and equality in labor management relations. The seeds of modern-day shareholder capitalism were planted in the immediate backlash to the New Deal. Over the next few decades, this backlash would grow in power. And it took form in a few ways. One was capitalizing on the fear of communism in the Soviet Union. And there was a lot of fear to capitalize on. The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Hoover speaks with authority on the subject. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. 
For years, some conservatives and business owners tried to use this fear to discredit New Deal advocates. They linked worker protections and FDR's administration to the Soviet Union. And that narrative struck. One 1936 Chicago Tribune headline read, quote, Moscow orders Reds in U.S. to back Roosevelt. This Red Scare propaganda tactic was effective. It was used to marginalize and even force out advisors who'd worked with FDR to craft a new deal. People like liberal economist Leon Kaiserling and consumer activist Mary Dublin. Many were subject to FBI investigations and loyalty review boards. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. At the same time, politicians were trying to discredit New Dealers. A then-fringe group of economists were beginning to attack Keynesianism, to attack the idea that the government should spend money to create jobs and redistribute income. These economists thought that the government should just get out of business's way, and they believed that increasing corporate profit was de facto good for society. In other words, shareholder capitalism. Milton Friedman from the University of Chicago became an icon of this free market school of thought, and he wanted to take down the New Deal. I don't want to keep things as they are. The true conservatives today are the people who are in favor of ever bigger government. The people who call themselves liberals today, the New Dealers, they are the true conservatives because they want to keep going on the same path we're going on. I would like to dismantle that. In the 40s and 50s, economists like Milton Friedman didn't have much influence in the highest levels of government. But they were courted and funded by conservatives and business owners who wanted to lower taxes, cut back on regulations, and spend less on social programs. Here's Friedman again. And that is the free lunch myth. The myth that somehow or other, government can provide goods and services, can spend money at nobody's expense. By the 1960s, Milton Friedman became one of the most public advocates against Keynesianism. And then he got involved in politics. In 1964, he was an economic advisor to the Republican candidate for president, Barry Goldwater. In that election, Goldwater got crushed by Lyndon Johnson. The voice of the people was heard in the land. 68 million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes 36th president of the United States. This was a blow to the political aspirations of free market economists. At the time, business was just going too well in America for workers and owners to accept a new approach to the economy. But then, the 1970s happened, and he created an opening to replace welfare capitalism with shareholder capitalism. The 70s were a mess economically. Companies weren't as productive. Countries like Japan and West Germany were now competing with American workers. And the U.S. had spent nearly a trillion dollars on the war in Vietnam. Oh, and there was an oil embargo in 1973. So consumers in Western countries were suddenly paying double for gas. We have at present an absolute shortage of natural gas. We cannot produce as much as we can use. President Jimmy Carter summed up the economic situation at the end of the decade in what's now known as the Crisis of Confidence speech. 
It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. In the 70s, Americans were dealing with a unique situation. Inflation and unemployment were both going up at the same time. This usually doesn't happen. They usually don't increase simultaneously, but they were. Unemployment had reached double digits for the first time since the Great Depression, and prices for pretty much everything kept going up. A box of Oreos, in 1970, 45 cents. 1980, 99 cents. One gallon of gas, in 1970, 36 cents. In 1980, $1.19. One can of Campbell's tomato soup, one box in 1970, 38 cents, 10 cents. In 1980, 24 cents, 99 cents. One Hershey bar. By the end of the decade, the average prices of many things had literally doubled. 25 cents. Business owners pointed to worker power as a source of these problems. And there's some truth to that. The New Deal had given workers leverage to get wage increases. So workers would ask for their wages to go up. And then in response, companies would raise prices to offset the cost of increasing worker pay. With the increased prices and cost of living, workers would then push for higher wages, and then companies would raise prices, and then workers would ask for higher wages, and on and on and on. It was a never-ending wage price spiral. To try to deal with this, executives and managers started firing people, and workers started going on strike. Politicians were desperate for some solution to unemployment and especially inflation. There is only one point on which all advisors have agreed. We must whip inflation right now. That's President Gerald Ford. In 1974, he promised to whip inflation now, or W-I-N. His campaign actually printed buttons that said that. But they didn't whip inflation, and they didn't win the next election. In 1976, Ford lost to Jimmy Carter, and he urged people to self-sacrifice, and he asked for workers and owners to come together and find a solution. They didn't, and the economy continued to tank. Now, this economic crisis could have been a time to re-examine the fundamental relationship between owners and workers. Tension had always been there, but for the last 30 years, American corporations were just so flush with cash, they could smooth over the friction. They had enough money to keep prices low and wages high. And investors were mostly happy with the returns they were getting. But the economic crisis of the 70s did not turn into a moment to reevaluate capitalism. Instead, the solution to high inflation and unemployment was to crush worker power so they couldn't push for higher pay and benefits. And then, with lower labor costs, companies could increase profits, keep their prices low, and hire workers at lower wages. Politicians like Ronald Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher seized on the public anger about the economy. They promised to jumpstart it by getting the government, which had been protecting workers, out of the way of businesses. Here's Reagan during a presidential debate in 1980. I would like to have a crusade today, and I would like to lead that crusade with your help, and it would be one to take government off the backs of the great people of this country 
and turn you loose again to do those things that I know you can do so well because you did them and made this country great. In 1980, Jimmy Carter was president and he was unpopular. Between the Iranian hostage crisis and the economic disaster, Reagan cruised to victory. He won 44 states. The political landscape had changed a lot by 1980, and race played a big role in that. Many of the white Americans, who were the main beneficiaries of welfare capitalism, didn't want black and brown people to share in the gains of this economy. Angry about the civil rights movement, many white voters, especially in the South, left the Democratic Party. That white backlash got linked up with the shareholder capitalism of the GOP. In his 1981 inaugural address, Reagan laid out a plan for getting America out of its economic crisis. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. He directed the anger in the country toward the government. Reagan started cutting taxes for wealthy individuals and corporations. He scaled back regulations, and he reduced spending on government projects besides the military. And in the early 80s, inflation did start to go down, but income inequality started to go up. Unions had lost a lot of the power that they once had. And executives and managers started doing more of the things we covered in the first half of the series. They were removing benefits, suppressing pay, and fissuring the workplace. A lot of this is what Milton Friedman and other free market economists had been wanting for decades. A switch from a country of welfare capitalism to one of shareholder capitalism. And even throughout all the changes since the 1980s, this has been the core philosophy of our economic system. Coming up, how big changes in one academic discipline have made shareholder capitalism seem like not only the best thing for society, but an inevitable thing. That academic field is economics. Getting stuff for cheap. Who doesn't like that? In the 1990s, Walmart began its rollback advertising campaign. The ads had a big yellow smiley ball that would bounce around and roll back the prices. The songs were set to popular pieces of music. You might recognize this tune. 
It's an adaptation of a track Lee Dorsey recorded back in 1966. The title is Working in a Coal Mine. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to step down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm already up and gone. Lord, I'm so tired. How long can this go on? Dad, I'm working in a coal mine, going down, down. John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman are two of the most influential economists of the 20th century. Keynesianism dominated from after World War II until the late 70s, while Friedman's free market neoliberalism dominated from the 80s onward. There's a stark difference between these two ways of thinking. Keynes believed that government should spend money to create jobs and redistribute income. Friedman believed that cutting spending and deregulating industries would lead to more productivity. And Friedman went a step further. He didn't just say that he had the best policies, but that his assumptions and models about human behavior were incontrovertible scientific facts, as if they were the same as gravity or the speed of light. Treating economics as if it were science like physics made the discipline really powerful, and it helped solidify the idea that shareholder capitalism was not only good, but the best and clearest reflection of human nature. Here are just some of the basic assumptions of free market economics. That people are rational creatures, that they will make decisions in their own self-interest, and that we're all better off when we make policies that allow everyone to try and maximize their individual gains. As we talked about, politicians like Reagan and Thatcher ran with these ideas and used them to start replacing welfare capitalism with shareholder capitalism. Free market economics, which was pitching itself as scientifically proven, it became a powerful way for politicians to justify policies that took from workers and gave to shareholders. It became an enormously useful tool for people who wanted to justify the status quo and in particular justify the rolling back of the New Deal and the Great Society and the backlash to the civil rights movement. Marshall Steinbaum is a professor of economics at the University of Utah, and he's critical of what happened to the discipline after the New Deal. He says economics is being used to shut down the thinking and approach of other disciplines like anthropology and sociology, which he notes are less dominated by white men. The rhetorical posture of we're the only ones who know what we're talking about, we're methodologically and ideologically superior to you, so your role in this, you, the democratic society's role in this uh, uh, so-called dialogue is simply to listen to us, dictate to you, and uh, put into effect what we're telling you to do. In Keynes' time, economics was just one social science among many. Now, economics reigns supreme. It has set the terms of the debate for the whole way we approach problems and look for solutions. We've come to measure success and failure mainly in economic terms and metrics, things like productivity, gross domestic product, and the stock market. If the economy is doing well, it must mean that the country is doing well. Marshall says the academic field has been used to do a lot of damage since free market economists hijacked it. I think that economists should feel aggrieved about that at their own colleagues for letting it happen. Um, at least that's how I feel. Uh, you know, this is a social science that has something to say. There's no need for it to be um, as elite serving as it is. Free market economics has had a deep effect on the way we think by naturalizing a lot of assumptions about human nature. 
namely that we are rational creatures always looking out for our own self-interest. Well, this is not a scientific fact like gravity or the speed of light, but it's been treated like this, and it's shaped the policies of both Democrats and Republicans. It's been used to justify things like cutting the safety net and allowing businesses to take benefits, pay, and power from workers. And as people have less and less, you can see that it might make them scared. They might think, well, no one's looking out for me, so I have to look out for just myself. This is Milton Friedman's world. It can easily become a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's a clip of Milton Friedman from a TV interview with Phil Donahue in 1979. And it's still a super popular clip online today. It's a little long, but in it, you can get a window into Milton Friedman's worldview. You can hear how strong his conviction is about human nature, and also the kind of rhetoric and ideology that has become so naturalized in America over the last 50 years. Did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism and whether greed's a good idea to run on? Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? This idea that the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests, that all great societies run on greed, that thinking otherwise is not rational and naive. This way of thinking is one reason why workers today have so little while shareholders and business owners have so much. A lot has changed since the late 1970s. These days, the world of shareholder capitalism is so unequal that the richest executives have to at least say they realize it's a problem. But as we saw during the pandemic, this acknowledgement from executives didn't necessarily translate to benefits for workers. In August of 2019, before the pandemic, CEOs across America, from companies like Amazon, Walmart, and Marriott, signed a pledge saying that it was time to change, that companies should be concerned with social good, not just shareholder profits. In other words, welfare capitalism. This is the beginning of a story I did about how hotel workers had been furloughed at Marriott because of the pandemic. And the workers were frustrated with their CEO for going back on his promise to prioritize more than just shareholder profits. I talked to a worker named Laura Lou Karumba. She cleaned rooms at a big fancy Marriott in downtown San Francisco. And the pandemic had put her out of a job. 
To save money, she and her three kids were crammed in one tiny room in a house with nine people. They were eating lunches that her kids' school sent home every day. I get the little things from their school. I got back uh, lunch like peanut butter jam, sandwich, and uh, milk for them, and that's, that's really a big help. Do they understand what's going on? Yeah, they understand. They understand what's happening. And um, they're kind of like sad, but I just tell them just to pray and uh, let's hope that this will end soon. Meanwhile, her employer Marriott had spent the last decade since the financial crisis buying back stocks to enrich shareholders. Karimba's employer, Marriott, has done very well in the last decade. It's used $16 billion in profits to buy back stock and issue dividends to shareholders. And here's the part of the story that really sticks with me. I listen in to a routine business update phone call where the CEO of Marriott, Arnie Sorensen, was talking to investors and reporters. It was a long, dry, boring phone call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Marriott International Business Update call. But towards the end of the call, someone asked Sorensen if the company would be buying back stocks during the pandemic. And Sorensen admitted that buying back stocks right now was a bad look. But he also made it clear that the company's profit should and would go to shareholders once the pandemic was over. I know that there is popular sentiment which is strongly against uh, share repurchase. And uh, to some extent, a crisis like this might might fuel that. At, At the same time... Uh, the uh, cash that we produce, uh, if it's not needed to invest in our business, belongs to our shareholders. In other words, business as usual. So much money has been taken from workers like Lara Lucarumba that they've got to cram their entire family into one room and eat PB&Js that their school sends home to the kids. While the executives, they tell the investors not to worry, profits are still going to shareholders. Next time. The only way I made it, I made it so far, I had to work so many hours. If I work uh, eight hours a day, I feel like I, I didn't work on that day. Workers today have to do a whole lot more than they used to just to survive. They work longer hours, get second jobs, even take out loans. Tomorrow, we'll look at the way that people cope after so much has been taken away from them. If you want to read up more on how free market economists came to power, check out Money and Government by Robert Sadowski and The Economist Hour by Benjamin Applebaum. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. So last year in the United States, people purchased almost $5 trillion worth of retail goods. That's about 150000 bucks spent every second of every single day. Now, a couple of years ago, Sam Harnett and I went to a Walmart in the Bay Area to record the beeps at a checkout line. We use those beeps to create this piece we're about to listen to. It represents how much Americans spend on stuff. So each time you hear a beep, that means $75,000 was just spent somewhere in America. 
Alright. Alright, have a good Thanks. day. Bye.